and thank the Lord for his word this morning. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, first this morning we thank you for the gift of prayer. Lord, it's my prayer this morning that the, this church, that we as a church, I would believe in prayer, not because it has any innate power, but because you brought us into a relationship with yourself and told us to pray. We acknowledge it's not the act of prayer that does us any good, but the object of our prayers. Lord, as we pray to you, we must know who we are praying to. We're not praying to ourselves because we are impotent and insufficient to, uh, to do anything about what we're praying for. Lord, we are rather praying to the all-powerful, almighty, sovereign God who created uh, the heavens and the earth and everything in it. We do not pray to a cold and impersonal universe. We don't pray to created things, little deities. But we don't try to arrange karma so that it benefits us instead of harming us. We speak to the loving Father who created the universe and created us and began a relationship with us through his son, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us live as if prayer really matters. Let us worship as if prayer really matters. Let us not grow weary in praying. Father, sometimes we can discount prayer and think that, oh, it's, just, it's not worth anything, you know, because the the world rebuffs at prayer. They'll mock people who say uh, our thoughts and prayers are, are with uh, a person, especially when uh, national tragedies or tragedies happen that garner uh, national attention. And, and uh, Christians would say uh, our thoughts and prayers are, are with them. And, and the world mocks and says, we don't need your thoughts and we don't need your prayers. But Lord, for the Christian, we know that prayer is important it is a utmost task for us let us believe lord that often the best thing that we can do is not to act first but to pray first let prayer be our first instinct rather than our last result last resort rather what i've seen and heard um, christians erroneously say uh, when all else fails to pray. Uh, no, Lord, we pray before all else fails. Prayer should be our first instinct. Let prayer be an uh, instrumental rather than supplemental to all that we do and all that we are. Let us be a praying church. First on Sunday as we gather together as we're doing now, corporate worship, and then throughout the week as we gather uh, with our families and as we meet uh, with friends and as we have times of personal devotion as we think about other uh, members of our church family that we commit ourselves uh, to praying for them Father help us to pray help us to make a priority of prayer and help us to see and celebrate answers to prayer give us confidence that our prayers matter not because 
we found just the right formula and not because we've just said the right words. But Lord, because we know you and are known by you. Because you are our God and we are your people. Or as the psalmist say, we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Lord, let us pray boldly. Let us pray confidently. And let us pray constantly. Scripture calls us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to pray without ceasing. Let us storm the gates of heaven through prayer. Let us pray until the day that Christ returns. And all the while, let us be thankful for the precious gift you've given us in prayer. And fathers, we pray this morning, we pray for Sister Dolores, who desires to be here, but uh, she has pain in her leg. Father, I pray that your spirit be with her, that you encourage her through the Holy Spirit, that she is not able to be with us this morning, that the spirit ministers to her and meets her spiritual needs until the sermon is posted and she's able to listen to it and may she be encouraged by the preaching this morning we pray for miss sandy that you be with her in her body and in her mind that you encourage her in her spirit by the holy spirit lord that you heal her spiritual wounds that she has and heal her body also and lord we uh pray also uh, for those of us in here who have different struggles that no one knows about, uh, whether it's financial, uh, whether it's through any uh, emotional uh, pains or issues, whether we're suffering in our bodies with uh, different ailments, uh, suffering on our jobs, uh, employment, and, and dealing uh, with uh, sinful people. Father, I pray that you encourage all of us by your spirit. We just thank you, Lord, for this day and for the opportunity to worship you right here and right now. We pray for Anderson Bible Church, Grace Fellowship, Redeemer Church, Christian Fellowship, uh, Mountain View Church, uh, Iron City Baptist, First Baptist Lineville, of course, here at the Living Church. Lord, we pray for all the brethren who are leading these churches. <coughs> that you fill us with your spirit today as we prepare to preach the message of the gospel. Strengthen us, Lord, by your spirit to be good shepherds of the flock, to be good stewards over your word that we have been entrusted uh, to preach. Lord, it is my prayer that during this time that we have together, that we will be able to set aside the concerns of daily life for a while, and that we will be fully present as the message of the gospel is about to be preached. I pray, Lord, that you send your spirit to illuminate the truths that we're going to hear this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would equip me to preach the word with power. We know, Lord, that the power is not in me, but in the word. Preaching is only effective because the word is effective. So, Lord, let my words be consistent with your word. 
Let my mouth speak what has come from your mouth. And Lord, let us be attentive and eager to hear, trusting that in preaching, we are not just hearing the words of a man, but we're hearing the truth of God. So Lord, may we set aside whatever distractions or concerns that we have right now that we've carried in here with us today. And let us listen and be changed by your word. And let us evermore, Lord, be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Man, I wrote that pastoral prayer uh, some years ago, so I hope you're encouraged by it. Um, let us turn to Ezra, the fifth chapter. We're continuing in our series through this great book. And... Um, we talked last week about the opposition that the exiles faced and this uh, Sunday, this week, and maybe next week, I'm, this may be a two-parter. We'll see how much we can get through today because we're going to look at some secondary texts out of uh, the book of Haggai and Zechariah. Our message topic today is overcoming discouragement. And this overcoming discouragement is done by means of the, the gospel through the word of God. So this is not a, a pep talk or a, uh, something that you would find a motivational speaker uh, preaching about or talking about. So we're going to look at overcoming discouragement. So let's look at our text. This is Ezra the fifth chapter and this is on the hills of the fourth chapter where the letter was written that we looked at last week and um, we said that the rebuilding was paused for a certain time uh, because of it. And so in this chapter we see where it is going to be resumed. So I'm not going to read the whole letter but just uh, read this passage in brief. Just give an overview of what we're looking at this morning uh, as it relates to um, the topic of discouragement. So it says here at the beginning, the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iro, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the temple of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At the same time, Tetanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and it says beyond the river, speaking of the Euphrates River, you had two great rivers in the Middle uh, East. You had the Tigris and the Euphrates, and those rivers are located in modern-day uh, Iran and Iraq area, over there in the... Uh, Middle East. So he's the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethabosnai and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then, accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews. 
husband that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. And then a written letter, I'm sorry, written answer um, was returned concerning this matter. And this is the copy of the letter that Tatanai sent. The governor of the region beyond the river and Sheth the Bosnai and his companions, the Persians, who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king. And then they write in parentheses here. Then uh, they sent a letter to him in which was written thus. So these are the contents of the letter, basically. To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked these elders and spoke to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned us an answer saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. And he's referred to Solomon, of course. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried away the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon. Those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given one name, uh, to one rather named Sheshbazar, whom he had given made governor. And he said to him, take these articles, go carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even till now, it has been under construction and is not finished. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. So they sent the letter to the king looking for a response. But in the meantime, they rebuilt the temple. Now, I'll tell you this. They didn't have email back then. They didn't have fax machines. <laughs> so these letters were carried over great distances. And sometimes it's according to how far off uh, it was to where the king was. Uh, just like them coming from exile, it took about four months uh, to travel those thousand miles or so to come to Jerusalem. So we don't know how long it took, but it didn't just happen in one day. They didn't just send an email to the king, and he was able to email them back and respond right then. So I just wanted to say that parenthetically. So just opening up, what is discouragement? What is discouragement? I'm sure all of us in here have been discouraged before, right? Some of us are probably discouraged right now about something. Things in our life are not going the way that we wish that they should. And we get discouraged. We hear bad news. We get discouraged. We're trying to get things to go a certain way. 
and it doesn't happen. And what happens to us? We get discouraged. Discouragement is a part of the human experience. Discouragement is part of the fallen world in which we live. I do want to say that off the top. It is part of the fallen world that we live. It is part of our sinful nature to be discouraged. Discouraged basically means to lose courage. Okay? It is a sense of unhappiness arising from a loss of confidence in one's abilities, in the reliability of God, or in the power of the gospel. That's what the theologian said in the Dictionary of Bible Themes. He says discouragement can occur in the Christian life, especially when there is resistance to the gospel or in instances of personal failure. Scripture provides reassurance for those who experience discouragement. So the question we're going to answer this morning is how do we deal with and overcome discouragement? Again, it does occur in the Christian life. It does. It is part of our fallen nature to experience discouragement. So when you are discouraged, don't act as if something strange has happened to you. But scripture provides reassurance for those who, who experience discouragement. And that is what we're going to see in this passage. So the question we're going to ask this morning again is how do we deal with and overcome discouragement in a gospel-centered way, in a way that glorifies God. So the big idea of this message and this passage that we have before us is that God's word, God's power, and God's sovereignty and providence supply the believer with the means to overcome discouragement. And we're going to see this in this passage. I say it every time. It all begins with who? God. All the answers to the complexities of life. All the answers to things that we encounter in this life. All the answers to the questions that we have begin with God. They have to. They can't begin with self. And we're going to see why that is the case. They begin with God. So looking at our passage here, we have uh, three principles. The first principle is God's word is the means by which we overcome discouragement. God's word. So the context here is we know the exiles came back from captivity. They came to Jerusalem to a city in ruins. And we read at the end of the uh, ch uh, second chapter, I think, when uh, the first foundation was laid and how the uh, younger uh, returnees were excited but the older ones remembered the glory uh, of the old temple and they um, you know cried they were emotional because of that so you had a a mixture of tears tears of joy and tears of sadness going on we we saw that and then we saw where uh, the last chapter that we read that there was resistance to rebuilding the temple so discouragement began to set in because they had to stop building the temple so now we enter into the prophetic ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. They were uh, what theologians call um, post 
exilic prophets. In other words, they were prophets who prophesied after the exile. They prophesied to the ones who had returned back to Jerusalem. So that is their place in redemptive history. And what happened is the Jews, in verse 1, they had slipped into a state of discouragement after they encountered resistance, as we saw in the last chapter. And the work of the temple had ceased for approximately 17 years. That's how long they had ceased the work of rebuilding the temple. That's a really long time for discouragement to set in. So you can see why they were discouraged. And so now it was time for God and his sovereignty to revive the work. And what means did God use? He used his prophets. He used his spoken word through the prophets. So we're going to first look at the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah and see their words. So if you turn to the back of the Old Testament, you see a book called Haggai, H-A-G-G-A-I. So let's turn to Haggai, the first chapter. I think Haggai is the third from the last book in the Old Testament. And we're going to see what the ministry of Haggai is. Because if you look at the first verse of Ezra 5, it says, The prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, they prophesied to the Jews. So we're going to see what they prophesied to them. So Haggai, the first chapter, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to see what the Lord is through his prophets. So Haggai, beginning at verse 1. Chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and uh, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. In the book of Ezra, it says Jeshua, but it's the same name. Uh, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. And why was that? Because they were discouraged, because it had been 17 years. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, and this is what the Lord says. Let's listen to what the Lord says. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord God of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into bags with Holes. So what do we see there? The people became preoccupied with their self-interest. As a result, they neglected their main purpose. What was their purpose for coming back? It wasn't to build their houses. It was to rebuild the house of God. 
their purpose for coming back was to renew their covenant with God, to restore the worship of God, and to rebuild the city of God. That's why God sent them back. And he rebuked them for that as we see. He says in verse 4, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses and this temple lying ruins? That's a rhetorical question, meaning, of course not. So God rebuked them for their selfishness. They allowed the discouragement over the past 17 years to drive them inward toward idolatry through the worship of self. Rather than looking outward and upward to God, their redeemer, the one who bought them out of captivity. And that is what happens when we're so discouraged that we neglect the word of God. We neglect what God's word says we, we neglect God's promises. When we cease worshiping God in our discouragement, we're going to inevitably worship ourselves. There's no such thing as worshiping nothing. You're either going to worship God or you're going to worship created things. That, and that created things can include yourself. You're going to worship your desires. You're going to worship your interests, your self-interest. What is one of the biggest mantras in our culture? Love yourself. Self-love. Self-care. Self-help. That is one of the biggest lies ever concocted by this secular world is worship yourself. Because that's basically what self-love is. You don't need more self-love. Jesus, when he said love our neighbors as ourselves, that is not a call to raise our self-esteem. But we can't love our neighbors as ourselves if we don't worship the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Because Jesus said that is the first. Okay. What is the greatest commandment? That is the first one. So that discouragement that Israel had led them to self-worship. They lived in their paneled houses while the house of God sat languished and not being rebuilt. When we fail to remember God's promises and his revealed will in our lives through his word, we are prone to allow discouragement to have us to focus on ourselves. And just... As a newsflash, we make terrible gods. <laughs> Self is a terrible God. Self is an unforgiving God. Self is an unmerciful, unloving God. The more you worship yourself, the more discouraged you're going to become because you're not doing it for yourself. Because you can't. Because you are not God. That's why selfish people are miserable. Why? Because worshiping yourself just doesn't work. It doesn't bring you the satisfaction that you think it does. Because you are a terrible God. All of us are terrible gods. None of us are worthy of worship. No one is worthy of worshiping us. We're not worthy of being worshipped. And we're definitely not worthy of, worthy of worshiping ourselves. Israel, they were discouraged. 
17 years have gone by, so they just settled comfortably into building their homes while the main reason why they came was being neglected, and God rebuked them for that. He spoke to his prophets. Look at what he says here in Haggai 1 and 7. What does the Lord say to them? Consider your ways. He rebuked them. He said, consider your ways. Our ways never work. Israel's way never worked. God says, consider your ways. Why? Because their ways always involve self. Friends, it is not God we ought to question in discouragement. It is God who questions us. God asked them, consider your ways. You're the problem, Israel. You're the reason why. Consider your ways. You build paneled houses, and this temple lies in ruins. Consider your ways. You have so much. This is what, this is what worship of self does. God lays it out perfectly here in verse 6. You sow much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but you're not warm. You earn wages, and it's like putting money into a bag with a hole in the bottom. Why? Because you are not going to be fulfilled. It is an empty and foolish pursuit. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. That is what that book is all about, the vanity of life, the vanity of things. Solomon said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The word vanity means empty, meaningless, worthless, all these things that we concoct to worship self are ultimately empty. They're foolish pursuits. They are a fool's errand. And God was telling them, consider your ways. God is not accountable to us. He's not accountable to us. We are accountable to him. Consider your ways. That's what he's telling them. Their priorities were not in the right place. They thought that being selfish would satisfy them. They thought that building their panel houses would do it. Isn't that what the culture tells us? Being selfish. What does the culture say? Look out for what? Number one. I got to look out. That was a thing when I was growing up. You know, you got to look out for number one. And number one is yourself. That's, that's, that's the way we taught when we were growing up. They, they don't say that as much now because it's, it's just full blown. They've gone whole hog with it. You know, worship yourself. You got to look out for number one. You can't, love your, you can't love others unless you love yourself first. You know, all those lies. Those are lies. You will never love yourself enough. You were not created to. The culture tells us love yourself. Make yourself happy. Do what is best for you. You do you. Live life to the fullest. All of those platitudes are empty at best and are rebellious to God at worst. You can send all the positive energy you want to somebody's way. Which is new age, uh, by the way. All this positive vibes, positive energy stuff. That's all new age, new thought. 
It's not Christian. It's not biblical. But our culture is swept up by it because it, provo it, it, it provocates the worship of, of self, the worship of man. That you can send out energy to other people. Like it's, it's transferable. That, that's, that's pantheistic. That's making you God. That you have the power to do that. The power lies within you. That's selfishness. That's, that's self-worship. That is idolatry. All these platitudes are rebellious. They're rebellion to God. None of that fulfills. John MacArthur said on this passage, by putting God first, he would then be honored in their worship and they would be blessed in the secondary manners of life. But we are so sinful that we, our default is to think more of ourselves than to put God first. Jesus himself spoke of the importance of, of spiritual priorities in Matthew 6 and 33, which is one of the often quoted verses uh, by Christians. Uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be excuse me added unto you this is a true and it is an abiding principle putting God first is our first priority and I'm going to say something about putting God first because even unbelievers say that People say, well, they give advice to a teenager that's graduated from high school. Make sure you put God first. Put God first in everything you do and everything will fall into place. We, we say it like a bumper sticker, but what does it mean to put God first? What is God saying to them about putting him first? That is an attitude of worship of God first. It's not just a bumper sticker slogan. It means when you're putting God first, when you're seeking the kingdom of God, that means the things that interest God's kingdom, the things that advance God's kingdom. When he says, seek first the kingdom of God, Christ is talking about everything that involves the kingdom of God, his rule. Because remember, every kingdom has a king, has a ruler. God is over his kingdom. God has laws, God has commands that the subjects of his kingdom are to live by. God has a, a will, a revealed will in his kingdom, which is his word. So when we say putting God first, we're talking about seeking God in his kingdom, his kingdom interests, his righteousness, things that he considers right, in his eyes, not in this upside down world that we live in where everything that is evil is good and everything that is good is considered evil. God said, consider your ways. Your ways are not putting God first. Your ways are, are selfward. So in verse 8 of Haggai 1, what does God say? What's that first word? Go. Go. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. God told them to go build the temple that who may be glorified? Him, because it is about 
his glory and not theirs. Stop focusing on yourself, Israel. Stop focusing on building your panel houses and building your life and go pursue my glory. And again, we're talking about how to overcome discouragement. You can't overcome it by being selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed. They were not concerned about God's glory but their own. John MacArthur said, God's joy in the temple is related to his pleasure in the people who would worship him there. And it's not that God needs the glory because he doesn't. Okay? But he gladly receives the adoration of his people. And that's what he was pursuing from his covenant people. So Haggai 1 and 12 says this. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, what did they do? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God and that God has sent him. And the people feared the presence of God. So they obeyed the voice of God spoken through Haggai. This is approximately 23 days after the prophecy was uh, proclaimed. Okay. We see that in verse 17 of uh, Ezra 4. So Ezra 5 rather. We're transporting back. Okay. So approximately 23 days. Afterwards. They began. To rebuild the temple. Led by uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. They resumed the work that laid dormant for 17 years because of discouragement. So God assured them that his presence would be with them and he stirred their spirits. Look at verse 13 again of Haggai 1. It says, Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to his people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So verse 14, the Lord did what? Stir the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. God stirred them up by what? Means of his word. When we're discouraged, let me ask this question. This is not in my notes. This is just something I thought about. When we're discouraged, how many of us really honestly go to the word for encouragement? To be stirred up by the word. That's something to think about. Scripture should be our default. We go to the word. We don't, again, we don't worship self. Because when you worship self, you're going to neglect the word. Why? Because the word is calling you to worship God. But since you're God, you don't need God when you're worshiping yourself. 
You're wiser than God. You know more than God. Why? Because you're God. You've made yourself God. I made myself a God. And because I made myself a God, why do I need God? Why do I need to seek his word when I'm the one who has all the wisdom? Because I'm worshiping myself. And when we worship self, we become even more discouraged. They were revived, they were strengthened, and they were empowered by the presence of God through his spirit. What revives us? The Holy Spirit of God. How does he revive us? By the ministry of the word. And the Spirit of God also causes us to obey God. Obedience to God's word brings about God's blessing to the Jews as well as his presence. And we see that in the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 28. For us, we obey Jesus out of our love for him. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if you love me, keep my commandments. And when we obey him, he and God the Father will make their home with us. And that's what we see here. God said, I am with you, says the Lord. God's word is the means to overcome discouragement. We must go to the word. We must not neglect this word. Amen. Our second principle here. We had God's word. Now we have God's power. God's power provides the encouragement we need to overcome discouragement. Y'all see the theme here? It's about God. Again, the word and his power. So now we have the other prophet that is mentioned in uh, Ezra 5 and 1. The prophet Haggai and then now we have Zechariah. Zechariah is right before Haggai in your Old Testament. So we have Zechariah here, who also the Lord uh, used. So Zechariah was Haggai's contemporary. It means they lived at the same time. And he prophesied to the Jews, and his prophetic ministry began two months after Haggai's. And his ministry was essentially the same as Haggai's. His ministry was to resume the building. To encourage Israel. So when you're reading, if you get a chance, by God's grace, I had a chance to about seven, eight years ago, I read through those what they call minor prophets, the last 12 books, beginning with the book of Hosea, all the way down to Malachi. I read through those prophets and, you know, wrote down observations and prayers and notes and all those things. Uh, those prophets, some of them were pre-exile, during exile, and post-exile, and these were two of the post-exile prophets. And when you understand the context in which they're prophesying, you can better see clearly what they were prophesying about. And that'll perhaps encourage you to read those books instead of staying away from them when you understand the context uh, that they were prophesying under. So Zechariah, his theme was resume the rebuilding of the temple. But first, he called the people to repent and not to repeat the sins of their fathers. 
You see this in Zechariah, the first chapter. Beginning at verse 1. The second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me. Return to me means repent. Because that is what repentance is. It is returning back to God. You're turning away from sin. You're turning away from rebellion. You're turning away from disobedience. And you're returning to God. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Do not be like your fathers. To whom the former prophets prophesied or preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I command my servant the prophets, do they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us, according to our ways and according to our deeds, so as he dealt with us. So God was warning them. Repentance is a good way to start relying on God's power and strength. We have to repent of our self-reliance. We have to repent of our selfish ways. We have to repent of loving ourselves more than being lovers of God. Paul said that in the last days that that would happen, that men would be lovers of selves rather than lovers of God. We have to repent of that. Repent of self-worship. Repent of self-idolatry. So we have to repent in our self-reliance and disobedience to God's word. So in Zechariah, the fourth chapter, the Lord gives him a vision of a lampstand and olive trees. It says, now the angel of the Lord who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was waking out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and the stands seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. This is a, uh, a menorah. Uh, two olives are by it, one at the right bowl and one at his left. So I asked and spoke to the Lord, who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he answered me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So again, the temple had been ceased being rebuilt. So this is God sending Zechariah to give the message to Zerubbabel because he was the leader of the people. And you all probably heard this verse before quoted, not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And then it goes on. So this is the vision of the lampstand. The lampstand reminded the Jews of the lampstand in the tabernacle and the temple. It also foreshadowed Christ as the light that gives light to every man. The bowl represents the Holy Spirit which supplied the pipes with oil to the seven lamps. 
and the two olive trees supplied to the bowl represents an abundant supply of the spirit. So the message of the olive tree is a limitless oil supply without human agency from the tree to the bowl to the lamp. And so that's why you see in verse 6, not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit. The vision of the lampstand and the olive trees to Zechariah was for him to encourage Zerubbabel that the daunting task of rebuilding the temple was to be done with whose power? God's power. By means of his spirit. So it is with the Lord's power that a once mighty obstacle will be made low. That's why he said, before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. What was the great mountain? The mountain was the task of rebuilding his temple. It was a great and mighty task. So God was telling Zerubbabel, this great task is going to be laid flat. Why is that? Because of God's power by means of his spirit. And then verses, um, verse 6 again, Zerubbabel with the Lord's help will finish rebuilding the temple. Despite the smallness of the temple, with God in it, it is much. So verses 11 through 14 of Zechariah 4. Then I answered saying. What are these two olive trees. In the right of the left stand. And at his left. And I further answered and said to him. What are these two olive branches. That drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes. From which the gold oil drains. Then he answered and said to me. Do you not know what these are. And I said no my lord. So I said these are the two anointed ones. Who stand beside the lord. Of the whole earth. The two anointed ones were Jeshua, who was the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who was the governor. Those two anointed ones represent the two offices of Christ, the two of the three offices. Christ has three offices. He has the office of prophet, priest, and king. In this passage... In the group of exiles that came back, uh, Jeshua was the high priest. And Zerubbabel was the king. He was the governor. He was the ruler. So those are the two anointed ones that God was speaking of. So God has spoken to Joshua and Zerubbabel through these prophets. And all the remnant told them to be strong and work because the Lord was with them. That his spirit would be with them. God told Moses the same thing in Exodus, in Exodus 3. When Moses was going to talk to Israel. And he asked, Lord, who shall I say sent me? He said, tell them I am who I am, has sent you. God was telling the people that I am, the great I am, is with you. The great I am is coming to deliver you from captivity. And God was telling 
these people, that he is with them, that they had no cause to worry or be afraid because he was with them. It's going to be done by his power because God knew that they could not do it themselves because 17 years had passed by. I'm sure they tried to muster up some, some, uh, you know, some, some of the exiles tried to muster up some type of campaign to rebuild the temple, but ultimately they could not do it. So what does all this mean for us? When experiencing discouraging circumstances, rely on God's power through the Holy Spirit to help you get through because his power is limitless. We rely on God when we're discouraged to, and, and you know, God is so faithful to see us through. I don't know about you all. I've had many discouraging times, especially in pastoral ministry, but God has saw me through. He saw, he's seen our church through, through discouraging times. Because why? We made determination to focus on the word, focus on prayer, using the means of the spirit, the ordinary means of grace, to persevere through those discouraging times. That's what we purpose to do. We want to do it God's way because his way always works. No matter how discouraging it gets. No matter how discouraging ministry work gets. No matter how discouraging life situation gets. No matter how discouraging it gets on your job. Whatever area of life, there's not a sphere in our life that is outside of the sovereign reach of God. No matter how discouraging that gets, it is not about your power and your strength. It is about God's power. No work, no matter how great or small, no matter how significant or insignificant in the world's eyes, because there's no significant work in God's economy. Anything can be accomplished with God's power, but nothing can be accomplished without God's power. Jesus, who gives us his spirit, when we're saved, he empowers us for every endeavor. No matter how discouraging the work may be, he empowers us by his spirit through every endeavor. Every endeavor he does that. So always remember God's power provides the encouragement we need to overcome discouragement. His power does it. Our last principle here. God's sovereignty and providence provides the protection we need to overcome discouragement. If you look back in the book of Ezra here at verses 1 and 5, see the sovereignty and providence of God are commanded, I mean as he commanded his people and protected the Jews during the rebuilding. Verse 1, it says here, the prophet, because we talk about the prophets, it says, in the name of the God of Israel, who was what? Over them. Who was over them. Then you look at verse 5, same thing. It says here in verse 5, 
But the eye of the Lord their God was what? Upon them, upon the elders. God was over them. Not King Darius. And the eye of the Lord was upon the elders of the Jews. As they did not cease the rebuilding. God was protecting and watching over those who obey his command to rebuild. He was watching them. He was looking at them. His sovereign eye was upon them. Hananiah's message in First, uh, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles 16 and 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. That's Second Chronicles 16 and 9. The eyes of the Lord are on those who trust in him. Psalm 33. The psalmist says, Rejoice in the Lord for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the heart. It says, For the word of the Lord is right and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. He says here in verse 13, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. We see here in Ezra that the God of Israel is over him. That his eyes were upon the elders. That's the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty was the means of the work continuing. The governor Tatanai could have stopped the rebuilding. He could have. Being that he was the governor of the whole region. But the Lord did not allow it. Look at verse 8. Let it be known to the king that we went up from the province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber. I'm sorry, and timbers being laid in the, in, the, in the walls. And the work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Through God's sovereignty, the work of the temple prospered. And this is something to, uh, important to note. It's not in the text. But that God's sovereignty and his providence and his timing allowed the Jews to continue their work. And this is why this is a little history thing. When Darius I became king in 520 B.C., his early years were filled with political turmoil. So this was a perfect time for the Jews to start rebuilding the temple because he had other concerns. He had, as we would say, bigger fish to fry. So God engineers all of human history in order to fulfill his purposes for his people. In, even when it seems like God is not there, 
he was there. So early on in Darius's reign, there's political turmoil because he had just taken over the kingdom. So he had time of transition, time of turmoil within his vast kingdom. So these little Jews who came out to Jerusalem, they were not on his radar. So during that time, guess what? Providentially, they were able to start doing what? Rebuilding the temple. That was by sheer providence of God. Listen. All that happens in our life is by providence. Providence, again, I have to explain it every time I talk about it, is you know, God's superintending of our, our lives. In, in other words, God orders all events and times of our life. There are no cosmic accidents in our life. There are no instances of fate or happenstance or strokes of good and bad luck. No, all of our life, everything that happens in our life is under the providential care of God. We are where we are in this moment in time because this was ordained beforehand by God. We didn't even choose how we were going to be born. We didn't, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't choose that. We didn't choose where we would be born. The doctor may say, yes, your date of birth is going to be on such and such a date. And it's good that God gifts them to do that, to kind of estimate the date of birth. But very few people are born on the actual day that the doctor says they're going to be born. Or the location where you're going to be born. It is all by the providence of God. God engineers all of human history in order to fulfill his purpose. So at the exact time that God ordained, they were able to rebuild this temple. And what this shows us is the sovereignty of God. And his providence provides the protection we need to overcome discouragement. Our discouragement doesn't catch God by surprise. God doesn't say, oops, I didn't, I didn't mean for that to happen. <laughs> it never catches God by surprise. Nothing in our life does. And that should encourage us. Nothing happens by surprise in our life. We should know through assurance God sees he knows and he's there in conclusion in times of discouragement we are never alone we are never alone God does not leave us wallowing in self-pity won't do I always make the joke you can have a pity party but nobody's coming to it you send out pity party invitations, you're not going to get anyone to come. You may get some likes and stuff on Facebook when you post your pity parties, as people do sometimes. You get all these comments, but those people are still going on with their lives while you're sitting there and wallowing in self-idolatry because that's what self-pity is. 
going on Facebook and social media won't suffice. Instead, we ought to feast on the word. Let the word of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, strengthen you in Christ as you face discouragement. That's what we ought to do. Paul said in Colossians 3 and 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, richly rather, in all wisdom. And we ought to teach and admonish one another. In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We can minister to one another in discouragement by the word. It is not about looking within yourself and getting up enough grit and self-determination or trying to uh, think positive and, and ask people to send positive vibes your way. It is about looking up to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the believer, it is about the Lord enabling us by his grace through the power of the Spirit that strengthens us as we face discouragement. Remember the words of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And lastly, we must trust God's timing, his providence, and his sovereignty. He is in total control of all that happens in this world and in our lives. God is in control. We can't just say that as a bumper sticker phrase. God is in control, even of me in my life. That discouragement you feel right now, it's in God's hands. Put those discouraging situations in the hands of the one who cares for you. What did Peter say to the saints? First Peter 5 and 7. Casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. We cast all our cares upon him. We have a high priest, Jesus, who is acquainted with our discouragement. He is not unfamiliar with our sufferings. We come to the throne of grace boldly that Christ may give us mercy in our time of need. Applications, simply put, obey God's word, rely on God's power, and trust in God's sovereignty and providence. It begins with God, and it ends with God. And it's in the middle with God. Let us pray. Father, perhaps there are members in our church, those who will listen to this sermon, that are facing discouragement. Lord, we pray that we, in those times of discouragement, they will come. That we seek your word first, that we get on our knees first. Lord, we will face opposition, we will face discouragement. Lord, let us press through 
and press in to you, not looking into ourselves, but looking up to you. Lord, we thank you that we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf as our mediator and our counselor. He is strengthening us. He is persevering us through discouragement. He is causing us to persist in doing his will to your glory. Lord, as we've seen today in this passage, you called the exiles to not focus on self, to not worship self, but to turn to you through your prophets, to repent. Lord, may we repent of our selfishness, our, our self-centeredness, our self-idolatry, our self-worship, and turn to worshiping the living God in our discouragement. The world tells us to look within ourselves. But Lord, you called us to look out to you. Lord, may you use this message as a call to the discouraged to obey your word and to rely on your power and to trust in your sovereignty and your providence. In Christ's name I pray, amen.